Hi, welcome back to The K-Hole. I'm Merritt Kay, and joining me this week is, uh, according to the Anomaly Journal of Arts and Literature, a filth core queen, arguably the filth core queen, Gretchen Felker-Martin. Hey, Merritt. It's so great to be on. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Um, well, back. This is your first time on. Um, this is definitely the first time we recorded this, too. We didn't <laughs> have problems earlier at all. Right. Very like spontaneous, spend a bunch very of off time the cuff. Staring yeah, numbly at the no. Discord screen. No, of course not. It's uh it's so good to talk to you again because it's been a while, I think, since we spoke in person. Yeah, I think um, the last time I saw you was in like twenty nineteen in New York. It would have been around then, I think, yeah. Um so that was around the time, I believe, that, or right after, um, I had stopped working at Verve. Yeah. Which, for those who don't know, is a streaming platform that once had aspirations to have an editorial platform, but uh, was bought out by AT&T, who decided that, why, hey, why are we throwing money at this stuff that isn't making us money? Um, I feel like that is... So much of that is the story of professional writing uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, you have, you know, you hear about Hemingway and all of those fucks getting paid to just go to Paris and maybe write something. <laughs> um, and then even into like the 90s, you know, you hear about people being paid to go to parties or to do just outlandish pieces or being flown out. And it's just sort of like, how can you extract some wealth uh, and get away with it? Right. And now it's like, you know, a, a listicle about the five things you like the most about scraping by at Amazon in a warehouse. Right, right. I remember, I don't know if this still exists or if it ever did come into existence, but I remember hearing that a mattress company was putting out a magazine because they could because <laughs> uh because you know everything is run by startups now and i i feel like what was the publication that grinder ran into oh my god i remember that i feel like what happened with that and i'm sure people did very good work over there and, and this is nothing to say about them but i'm sure what happened is some executive at grinder one day saw a line item on the budget for into editorial publication and said, we're spending this much money on, on what? For how many page views? <laughs> uh, you guys know we run an incredibly profitable app, right? Um, so let's not do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I mean, everything is so auto cannibalistic, auto cannibalistic at this point. There's no company that won't eat parts of itself in order to become minimally more profitable in the short term. Right, right. And as someone who who writes in kind of a vile mode, um, you, I assume, have to find, you know, you have to find these places where you can. And I know you publish a lot of your work through Patreon. Mm -hmm. Um do you think that some of that work 
Is it the kind of thing that you would have trouble placing in places? Or has anyone ever told you to be less nasty? (laughs) Yes, um, pretty often for a variety of reasons. Wow. Um, I want names. I'll I'll fight them. (laughs) Thank you. I would appreciate that. It's a really boring and irritating thing for me to hear. And I've, I've certainly never listened to it. Um, and I do think that there's a fair amount of my original fiction, certainly all the stuff that I've published independently would be rough to get out through a traditional publisher because it doesn't have like a catchy hook. It's not very similar to anything popular and it's really relentlessly unpleasant and abrasive. Yeah. And I, in, in kind of the conversations around your work um, over the last few years and other people's work as well um, that are kind of in similar spaces, I've noticed this dynamic and um, online and I don't want to blow these things out of proportion because I think ultimately a lot of these conversations that happen online don't have any importance once you step away from the computer. Um, But some of them do. But it seems like there are two camps that you can fall into when it comes to vulgarity or crudeness or danger or blood or guts or anything sexual. And these are the two camps are literally anything goes just on one 24 seven, like constantly talking about how horny you are. And the other one is if you've ever been horny, I'm going to decapitate you with my katana. Right. You, you are going to get gestapoed by people in cat years. You are going to literal Christian hell. Yeah. Which is, real. Uh, which is real, but only for people who write fan fiction wrong. And both of those polls are so unappealing to me. And I think as someone who publishes stuff that is really intense and gross sometimes, I assume you must get lumped in with the anything goes camp. I do pretty frequently. And it's certainly not something that appeals to me at a personal level. You know, I have no desire to broadcast my whole sex life. I have no desire to tell strangers like what I'm into. (laughs) Um, It seems crass in a not sexy or fun way. Right. It's it's to me, there's no mystique to it. And mystique is such an essential part of experiencing attraction. You know, I mean, we talk a lot about the mortifying ordeal of being known, but not knowing is just as important in having like a sexual or romantic relationship. You cannot breach every barrier with another person or, I mean, that's just codependence. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, but I am frequently lined up against the wall with those people. And I understand why they behave the way that they do. It's a very rough climate out there if you're queer or trans or just like even not normatively attractive. Um, And I get that there's this like desire to be immediately apparent to others who share your principles. 
and to scare off people who, you know, if given an opportunity would try and get you fired from your job or like expose your sex life to your family. (laughs) But in general, I think that any subculture that comes primarily out of a knee jerk reaction to something else that's really horrible is probably going to be pretty unbearable itself. Right. Right. It's defining itself around what it isn't. Yeah. Um, and sometimes then there's no core there. There's just, we have to do this thing because other people don't like it when we do that. Right. And, you know, I think that if my books were truly wall to wall repulsive things happening, that would not be a very interesting thing to me. I think that when a book or a movie or, or whatever, any art is trying to really get a reaction out of people, a negative reaction physically, you know, like horror tries to actually frighten people, porn tries to arouse people. The key is to give them something that they can really connect with first. You have to let someone believe that there's something worth understanding and seeing and appreciating in this text before you can really use it to hurt them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in all of my work, I try to place little moments that are tender, that are intimate, that speak as much to my experience as anything awful I write about. And I, uh, I think that's frequently missing from people who really covet extremity for as its own end. There's a sense that maybe those people are reacting to, well, I think it's a kind of mutual reaction, right? Because there are people who are saying, we should only have those tender moments. We shouldn't have the horrible things. Why do we need the horrible things? They're already, they exist already. Um, And they're horrible. (laughs) They're fucking horrible. So why do we need them? And then, you know, there are people who are saying, uh, we should just have as many horrible things as we can just, to freak out the norms or uh, to sort of, yeah, to just kind of defy that idea. And I'm kind of sympathetic to both camps. Sure. Um, I think there are elements of, of truth in them and not to, uh, not to say, oh, well, the truth must lay somewhere in the middle. Oh, God, no. But it certainly doesn't lay in either of those poles. So maybe it's on another axis entirely. Yeah. I think ultimately it's not related to that debate. I think what I see on both sides of that, that issue, you know, among these sort of neo puritanical people and like, I guess, shock jocks for, for lack of a better term, there's no respect for the emotions that art can instill and that depicting Mm -hmm terrible things in art can instill. 
you know, it's, it's either you're throwing paint at the wall or you simply refuse to engage in that practice at all. And anyone who does it must be a piece of shit who would do those things in real life if they got a chance. I'm always saying this about authors <laughs> that if Tolkien had a chance, he would have gone on a grand adventure with a bunch of dwarves and his friend who is a wizard. That's really and problematic. I just feel like he shouldn't, you know, like. Yeah, I remember think about it. when I finished reading Perfume, I was like, Patrick Susskind is definitely out there clubbing redheaded teenagers to death and stealing their scent. And then making a super powerful perfume. Right, the titular perfume. Causes a mass orgy and leads the Parisian peasants to tear his body apart. It's rough. You know, you don't. It's all in the text. It's It's right there. It's right there. I've just, I feel that there is no interest in asking why you might depict such a thing or allowing yourself to experience a depiction like that. These are sensual issues, maybe more than their moral issues, because a fictional event does not have real moral weight. Even watching something like Come and See, which is so directly aimed at showing the viewer a moral quagmire, the depictions of German and Russian war crimes in that movie are not themselves like moral catastrophes because they're actors doing stunts. At the same time, I can see how... I think the film is something that really sets people off in a more visceral way. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Just because, you know, if you're reading a book that is like a different kind of experience than witnessing something happening in front of you. I think um, also many of these people do not read books. Oh. Or do not read a book that they feel would be upsetting. That may be part of it um and speaking of books and films that are upsetting i wanted to ask you about something that i think you maybe wrote about a few years ago at verve but um has been on my mind lately which is american psycho oh yeah now my sense is that um well i have read parts of the book and i've seen I've seen the movie. So this is a movie based on like, it's the same source material. It's the same basic structure, the same characters. And yet to me, the book falls into just like, I'm going to do this because I can. Uh, Whereas the movie feels a lot more like it has some kind of, meaning to it. Absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. I have read Brett Easton Ellis's original book. I do not like it. Um, you don't like the chapter where he stabs a child at the zoo? You know, I, I wasn't wild about it. No. And it's, it's not that I refuse point blank to watch media where a child or an infant dies or is hurt. I actually just finished watching and writing about them, the new horror anthology series. And there is 
maybe the most scalding, upsetting depiction of a child being murdered that I've ever seen in anything in that. Like, so bad that I had multiple nightmares about it for the next few days. And I thought that was fantastic. You know, I think that if you take that out of the show, you're, you're left with something deflated and lesser. And I think it was really worth committing to film. But Brett Easton Ellis uses violence without insight. He is not a person who I believe has a great deal of insight into things like masculine anxiety or misogyny. I think that he recognizes them and can deploy them skillfully and wittily, but he doesn't understand why they exist or what they suggest. Right. Right. And I find his uh, depictions of women to be very flat and uninteresting and his attempts to like pick apart the violence that men do to women and children to be mostly just kind of voyeuristic. Right. Yeah. I think in the film, um, Christian Bale brings a lot to that role, I I think. And um, obviously the direction changes a lot of it too, because he is legitimately terrifying Yeah, for what he embodies, not just as a kind of generic 80s depersonalization uh, brands, oh, look, Coca-Cola kind of thing. Um, but as, like, as a man in a really specific way. Yeah. Um, and it it's made worse almost by the fact that Christian Bale is, like, almost objectively extremely attractive in that movie. Yeah. Um, and that makes it even more terrifying. It's, I mean... Mary Heron is is just the fucking greatest. She's so talented. And it's a real shame that she did not get to step up to the big leagues after that movie. Because, I mean, of course, that's what happens to very good directors who happen to be women. Or the other thing is they get co-opted by the CIA. <laughs> right. You know, and, and now we get to look forward to Nia DaCosta's Captain Marvel Jr. or whatever it's going to be. Well, I've been watching a lot of Catherine Bigelow films lately, and I feel like her early work is just so... Some of the, the best movies I've ever seen, Near Dark, is... I only saw it a couple of weeks ago, and it's already become one of my favorite films. Oh, it's really, really good. It's it's incredible. Um uh, point Break also just really insightful fascinating stuff about men and even The Loveless which I just watched yesterday not her best work but still just compelling and then you know The Hurt Locker Zero Dark Thirty <laughs> yeah it gets uh, Triple Frontier it gets pretty dark right I feel like with Mary Heron an American Psycho she shows this process of synthesis that Ellis can't really get his arms around. You know, Mm -hmm. she makes Mm -hmm. Patrick Bateman a believable avatar of the world around him. And while she does, God, how is it that Christian Bale is so good in that movie? And then like, I've never cared about anything he's ever done since. 
I mean, that's a good director. Yeah. She got it out yeah. of him. Um, she, she dragged it out of him. <laughs> but just that, that fragility that he has, the anxiety that he lives in constantly is so evocative. It's so interesting. I feel like she really gets what it is like to be a man and to need to constantly perform manhood, especially at this weird crux of different intersecting parts of it that is being like a business executive in the 80s, where you have this highly feminized like skincare regime and you're expected to know things about world politics, but also to be decisive and sexy and muscular. And it's just like, it's all these contradictory things that he is essentially picking out of catalogs and forcibly incorporating into himself. I see a, not one so one parallel, but kind of a connection to the ways that the self has become um, commodified and has been increasingly defined by consumption and um, and by the use of like increasingly specific labels. Oh God. Um, I'm not saying that these people are serial killers allegedly. Um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not like that's, I just see like, you know, Bateman as this this guy who who just kind of gets all his opinions from like the right magazines. Yeah, um, absolutely. Re- recites his speech. That I mean the speech sounds like about the records. It he really sounds like in the it's, news. Yeah, he's it sounds like it's from a Rolling Stone column. He's definitely like, quoting a review. <laughs> right, exactly. And he's just trying to consume all of the right things and just you know, go through all of these motions to create this this identity. And I I wonder sometimes whether I'm getting old because I look at the ways that people discuss identity online sometimes and it just feels so div- divorced from any kind of reality to me. I think um, that, I mean, I you and I are comparable in age, but I definitely feel the same way there comes a point where you're reading about people who talk about being sapiosexual or whatever. I I heard an absolutely unbearable one the other day. Someone said that they were plesiosexual, which is that they only derive sexual pleasure from pleasing a partner sexually. And like, man, that's just not being an asshole. I thought you were saying plesio, like plesiosaur. It, It is spelled that way. So that would just make me think that you want to fuck fish like Troy McClure in that Wen Simpsons episode. <laughs> or at least a marine reptile. Allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. There is this tendency to try and encapsulate any emotion you have and then turn it around into some sort of fact about the rea- about the world. You know, it's it's the same impulse that well, I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but my essential point is that not every sensation you experience needs to be mapped into some sort of highly specific facet of your identity. You can just like it when your partner gets off. 
Yeah, I wonder sometimes how much, and again, I'm going to sound really old here, but modern social media in changing the internet from a, an archipelago of of different sites and forums into kind of these little nation states uh, centrally controlled, like Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. I feel like there has been this structural technological push towards having a singular identifiable self and if that's the case and if you need to if you're being pushed to have like this this coherent public facing self that is the same to everyone then i guess it would make sense that you would want to be really sure about what that was uh so i could see the appeal of coming up with increasingly specific terms to define yourself because you're putting yourself out there to the whole world. Uh, whereas when I was growing up online, no one knew my real name. Um, right. You didn't share your name with strangers. Uh, you know, you had a different username on every site. You talked about different interests on every site. You didn't have a public facing brand. No. Um, and I think maybe that's part of that disconnect. Oh, just like, I don't, feel the need to do these things because to me it isn't as critical that I have that kind of sense of self. Also, I don't think that there is such a thing as the self. No, I agree with you. I mean, I have a persona for work that I do online and it's, it's not like a, a big, you know, Commedia dell'arte performance or anything. It incorporates parts of who I am, but I have no interest in trying to reconstruct the totality of me in some sort of half-assed digital form. I don't think it's possible and I don't think it's advisable. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Like, I think a lot, we tend to just sort of assume that there is such a thing as like the identity and like the self. And it's a core thing that even if you, even if you, you don't come from, a family background of Christian tradition, it very much is kind of this ghost in the shell sort of perspective of like, I have a core self and it's hidden inside of me. Um, And it's like unchanging and eternal. And my body is something that I have. Um, Right. It's a possession of that self. It's possession. And you can get into tricky territory with this stuff sometimes because Obviously, some people will use criticisms of those arguments to deny people rights or to uh, do all kinds of nefarious things. But I still think that those views hold us back a lot of the time. I think so, too. Like this inherited dogma that even if we don't think we believe, our society is kind of built on it. Yeah. And I think that it's very easy to put the lie to this thing, you know, like any sort of huge artifact of collective belief that's, that's indoctrinated and not analyzed at any point. Put someone in a room with a parent. They're instantly a different person. Switch them between groups of friends. They will not behave the same. There is no coherent static self. I and every other person is a different human being in any given room with any given combination of other people based on uncountable other factors like mood and weather. 
Right. You are, you are a lot of other things that aren't just your internal essence or your mind. You, yeah, you are all of these other things surrounding you. Right. I think that the sort of mystical idea that you can perfectly codify every aspect of yourself is something that holds a lot of people back and keeps them sort of arguing about useless immaterial crap. Yeah, I um there's almost like this strain of gnosticism uh that and I don't know, you know, some of the gnostics are interesting people and some of their stuff is is fascinating, but kind of the fundamental idea that the material is is false and that you have to break through to like a higher truth or higher that you are sort of a, a thing that is trapped by the evil physical world. Right. Um, and you have to break the illusions of the material universe. It is very isolating. I it think. is. It puts everyone in their own little cell and kind of posits that they cannot have any kind of union with anyone else until they've broken out. And of course, all of this is just like people who lived centuries ago trying to make sense of their world and maybe doing Oh, so. of course, of course. I'm talking about the ways that <laughs> that it sort of has trickled down into, into modern thought. Oh, sure, um, sure. The general idea of the higher mysteries. Right. And I think there are mysteries. Yeah. Absolutely, there are mysteries. It's just that to, to put yourself at odds with the world feels so self-defeating. You know, I know that you and I both really love the television show, The Young Pope. We do. We do. This is true. And there's a wonderful scene in that where the titular young pope, played by Jude Law, is talking about cultivating mystery. And his mentor... Um, who is played by George Cromwell, most famous to our generation for being the farmer from Babe the Talking Pig, says that mystery is a serious business. It's not something you play around with. It's not a goal. Mystery is not something you can access. Mystery is the unknown. And the unknown is not just another set of information that you haven't gotten to yet. The unknown is untouchable. It's beyond you by definition and you will never reach it or comprehend it and i think that this is very uncomfortable for a lot of people to exist in a state of uncertainty a a parallel there um it's funny that there's a parallel to a character in a show about catholic priests and and modern science but there is a perspective among some scientists who study consciousness and who study the brain that there is a hard limit on what we will ever be able to understand about our minds because we are coming at the problem from within our minds. Right. That you cannot understand the thing with which you are doing the understanding. 
Right. It's a lot like, um, you know, to what extent can a human perform successful surgery on themselves? Right. right. The instrument that you're trying to fix is also the instrument that you're using. And there are, there are problems inherent in that. I've never really thought of it. Is that something you've thought of it before? Someone trying to perform surgery on themselves? Or is that just a metaphor? Because I feel like I've never even considered that. And it's a really grim picture. It's actually something I think about a lot. Really? Well, I've always been very fascinated by scenes in film where people perform minor surgical procedures on themselves. You know, you see this a lot in tough guy action movies. Sure, sure. Or, you know, in movies that are are sort of deconstructing that, like No Country for Old Men, there's that incredible sequence where Anton Sugar takes shotgun pellets out of his leg and you know, he has to like lay down a tarp and drain the blood out of his boot and then cut it off and administer his own anesthetizing agents without knocking himself out. And I find anything that approaches the body as a machine to be very, very fascinating. I have a really fraught relationship with my own body and I always have. And much of the time it does not feel to me like something that is attached to my concept of self to go back to what we were talking about earlier. So to watch someone work on their body, like it's a car, there's something very cathartic about that to me. The scene that immediately comes to mind is in Terminator two, when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is hit with a shotgun several times. And, um, he has to, or I think he or John and Sarah Connor have to remove the the pellets from him. And that is fascinating because it is literally a machine and also kind of a person. Um, because I believe the Terminator says that it it basically does feel pain. Yeah. Which is really fascinating. Yeah, I really like that scene. I'm a big fan of that movie in general. But the idea of creating something intentionally and making it able to understand pain because it's advantageous for it to be able to feel it is then it knows how and from where it's being hurt. That's so interesting to me. (laughs) You know, we think of any sort of idealized warrior figure as implacable and invulnerable. But here's one that has been manufactured for optimum murderous efficiency, and it feels things like we do. You know, it it sort of forces you to reflect on humanity's place in the dissemination and creation of instruments of violence that they are all ultimately modeled off or extended from us. I've realized also that there. Are- is a deleted scene um, at that part of the film where in the theatrical release, the Terminator just says that he learns more the more contact he has with humans. Um, In the deleted scene, he says that he can learn, but only if this chip in his brain is switched from read only to write access. And so in that scene, John Connor like flips the switch and like lets the Terminator 
be more human. And like also he just has his hands rooting around in the back of his head. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I always loved the data scenes as well in um in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh yeah. Data is like probably my favorite character on that show. And all the scenes where Jordy, who is depicted as kind of a creep later on, um in a lot of, I don't know, just very awkward ways. But all the scenes where Jordy just has the side of Data's head off and is just like trying to fix him. And he's just kind of like sitting there just with his vacant look. It's so fascinating because it's like, well, this is this is a, someone who's your friend, but who also you see as, you can see as a series of parts and like all of these things that make them up. And in a way, like that's true of all people, right? We just don't have the training, you know? If you were a surgeon, I would imagine you might also come to see people in those terms. Yeah, I always found those scenes interesting too, because they're so intimate. Right. And it's so casual in its own way. Yeah. It's like, why would Data, it's not like Data is embarrassed or anything. He doesn't have human emotion, or well, arguably he does, but. Depending on on the episode. Right. Um, But there is something so alluring about the idea of having these quantifiable parts of your your way of being that another person could see and know and manipulate i guess to bring us for full circle that's really what a lot of people are looking for when they sort of engage in hyper specific definitions you know, it's it's all a sort of complex way to say, look at me, this is who I am, this is how I am. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense of like, yeah, here are all my parts. I'm not a scary and unknowable thing, and the universe is not scary and unknowable. Um, I've figured this out, at least, this little network of yeah. electronic signals and blood vessels and muscle. Yeah, I feel like I can understand it on those terms. Wow, yeah. I can't believe we've talked ourselves into a defense. Well, not a defense, but an understanding of of these dynamics. But I think that is important. Yeah, I do too. You know, there's, there's not much to be gained from just sort of dismissing these things and or railing at them. But I do think that Having empathy for people, whether or not you think they are engaging in something that is sort of obnoxious or useless or actively harmful, it's just a baseline important thing. Right. And I think it's what I've realized around this stuff is that when people say things like you don't owe anyone your time or your forgiveness or like you don't owe anyone these things or it's okay to be angry and stuff. Like I realized that it is okay to feel things um, because feelings are ingrained reactions that are really deeply <laughs> like evolved responses to certain situations and also are conditioned by your upbringing in society. But at the same time, it isn't always a good idea to feed those emotions um, for yourself. So something like anger 
when I try to be less angry at people, it isn't for their benefit. It's for mine. Right. Um, because I can, there's a certain level maybe of anger, which can spur you to action or can inspire you to, to change something about yourself or to do something. And there is another level of anger, which is solely destructive of you mainly. Um, right. It's of, corrosive. Of, it's corrosive of your sense of self and, and of your sense of control. And so, yeah, when I, when I try to understand people, I guess it is more often more for me than anything. Um, Cause I don't want to, I don't want to have these intense negative feelings. Like, um, and that doesn't mean I'm just not going to feel them because of course I'm going to feel them, but then what you do with them is the question. Right. Right. And you can sort of put them through the refining and the refining process of coming to understand them and letting them go. I remember when I was first picked up by my literary agent, there was this group of people who were extremely angry about this because of indecipherable internet bullshit and the fact that there are people who don't like me. And that's, you know, that's okay. I'm not for everyone. I'm pretty strong medicine and I'll own that. (laughs) But they were getting in touch with my publisher and my agent and saying just the most appalling things about me, you know, that I had, that I was an attempted murderer and that I supported harming children. And it really, it, it gave me terrible agita. You know, I would, I can see why I would have trouble falling asleep. I would have constant stomach aches and would just, you know, I would really struggle with depression, which I'm, I'm prone to. And it took me months to get through this. And it, it was just constant. It was so awful. And finally, a big thing that helped was realizing that these people are alone, that they have no one showing them how to behave except other people who have figured out that they can get emotional reactions out of others by being really extreme and violent. And it made me feel a lot of pity for them. And it also made me understand that part of the reason this was also upsetting for me was that many of these people were younger trans people, members of my own community, and that mentoring younger trans people has always been something that's very important to me and dear to me. So having this experience where people I think I could offer something are out for my head was extra upsetting in that dimension. So I think even when people are behaving really unpardonably to you, you can't just get angry about it indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not sustainable. You have to place it in a context within your experience of life.
a very admirable thing to be able to do. I do my best. I mean, that's, all, <laughs> that's all anyone can really do. Um, yeah. There's certainly still people, the mere sight of a tweet from whom will make me insane with rage. Well, we all have a few people. Yeah. What's the phrase? Bitch eating crackers. <laughs> Where you can't stand someone to such an extent that really anything they do is is unbearable. <laughs> can't believe this bitch would eat crackers. Yeah. That's right. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's been um it's been an interesting experience and it's been on my mind a lot lately because I did get picked up by an agent and eventually a publisher and my first novel is coming out in 10 months now, which means that press is about to start and right. I'm going to be more visible than I've ever been in my life, which historically in my time online as a, a writer and someone minimally with a public presence has been really tough. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like, everything I'm talking about here is about to really get a stress test. Right. Yeah. You were going to be challenged to maintain your composure or your, to, to stay true to your sense of how to do these things. And uh, that may be very difficult and I don't envy you, but I'm sure you will get through it uh, with, with grace. Thank you, Merit. That's very kind of you. Yeah. Um, and if nothing else, just remember that no one really looks that cool <laughs> online. And people yelling at you, I think most people can tell that they're, you know, freaks and freaks and geeks, just like my favorite TV show. <laughs> yeah, freaks that's and geeks true. Is not my favorite TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like it's usually pretty obvious that the people who are, are the most out to have me burned at the stake are uh, not playing with a full deck. They are posting from, as they say, a cracked screen. <laughs> yes, that classic saying we all love to know. You know, they're posting from a cracked screen with a dirty bedroom. <laughs> so, uh, you know, take care of your own situation. Before right. you come for someone else. As There's the great Jordan like that Peterson in the says, Bible. clean your room. As the great Jordan Peterson says, do clean your room. And there's something in the Bible about that, about your house, taking care of your own house, probably. Probably. Is the Bible or Shakespeare? Uh, it's one of the two. Most things are that's, one of the two. That's true. It's Most things are. Well, I think that is probably a good place to wrap. Um, thank you so much for coming on and for, for talking with me. Thanks for having me, Merit. This was really nice. Where can people find your work online? Uh, I am scumbelievable on Twitter. I have a Patreon under my full name, Gretchen Felker Martin. And my first novel, Manhunt, comes out from Tor Nightfire next february that's so exciting i'm i'm pretty jazzed about it thanks do you want to give people just a little taste of what it's about so they sure maybe know if they want to look into it more so 
Manhunt is the story of two trans women, Fran and Beth, who live in the wreckage of post-apocalyptic New England. And they make their living and eke out what life they're able to have by hunting men. And in this future, men have been reduced to a feral sort of troglodytic cannibalistic state by a viral pandemic. And I had this idea before reality scooped me. So for the record, before COVID turned man into cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Yeah. Um, So Fran and Beth have to hunt men and harvest their testicles, which is where male bodies store and produce estrogen. So estrogen is literally stored in the balls. Um, I thought that was pee. I mean, it's it can be both. There's a lot of sexual hormone in in pee. You can really, uh, yeah, you can refine and concentrate mare's piss to isolate estrogen. I'm learning so much today. Um, this is a science show now. So they do this profession, which is is you're known as a man hunter. Um, partially to trade and to support themselves and partially because if they don't keep up with their medication, they will manifest the symptoms of the virus themselves. So it's really a book about like my own experience with fear of being seen as a man and my relationship with the life that I had as a man before I came out. And I am anticipating that a lot of people will not be cool with it, but hopefully a lot more will. So we'll see. (laughs) Well, I can't see why. (laughs) I don't think people will have any problems with this. I think it's a a fantasy concept. Yeah, that's a, a division people seem to have a really easy time wrapping their heads around. Yeah, well, you know, probably most of those people... I was going to say probably they don't read, but we have seen that people can get very upset about things that they don't read also. So yes, I just be cool. You know, if you're listening to this, just be cool. Just chill for a minute. And if you have a visceral reaction to something like a novel like this, then regardless of who it's by or, or, or what, I think it is always helpful to step back and ask why am i having such an intense reaction to this and there may be a very good reason and the reason you know it it may be very real and and you may come to realize oh i should do something about this feeling whether that is you know try like try to deal with this this thing that you've had a reaction with or step away or whatever sometimes yeah you may have a very real reason and sometimes it, you may realize, wow, this has something, this has nothing to do with this exact thing that I'm looking at. It's bringing something else up for me or it's reminding me of this other situation. Yeah. And just putting that stuff between the reaction and the action, not to sound all, you know, therapy, but I think we could all often afford to move a little bit more slowly. Yes, I think so too. Thank you again so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I will see you all again 
next week in the KR. Bye. The K-Hole is a fanbyte.com production, hosted by Merritt K and produced by Jordan Mallory. Follow Merritt on Twitter, at Merritt K. Follow Jordan on Twitter, at Jordan underscore Mallory. For more information on Huey Lewis and the news, go to fanbyte.com slash podcasts or visit podcastnet.org.